Good evening, friends, fellow Dhammafarers, children of the Noble Ones, you fine collection of medium-sized beings. I salute you and salute your efforts today in practice. Sincerity of your intention here on this retreat. I offer my wishes for your well-being, your happiness, and your freedom from every kind of suffering. Probably by now most of you have uh, discovered that we have kind of two main problems in meditation. A body and a mind. I mean, it would be much simpler if we could somehow, you know, get rid of those two things. But there are some obvious drawbacks also to, to eliminating those. They seem to have their own ideas about what's going to happen. At least mine do. Especially the mind, it seems to have a mind of its own. At the heart of what we might think of as sort of the human predicament is this, this question, and I think this really resides at the, at the heart of what brings us to to a practice like this and just to come to retreat like this is, is some sense of, of a connection to the question of where do we look for real happiness? Where can we find that? And pretty much everything we might say in a talk like this is in some way addressing this question. Where do we find some kind of real abiding sort of happiness? And you might call it satisfaction or peace or well-being, the deep ease. But this, this desire to be at ease, to be happy, however we might express that, is something we share with all beings. And there's, it's a beautiful, wholesome, lovable wish. And we actually turn to that shared wish as, as a way to open the heart to uh, the qualities of kindness and compassion and joy, this connection through this, this movement of mind, wishing to be happy. Our usual approach is to try to get the conditions in our life to, to line up with an idea we have of what would bring happiness. Finding the right job and the right partner and the right place to live and, and all these things that we, we've been told and, and taught and, and really see as the keys to happiness. And these are, are not unworthy things to consider. It's not foolish or useless to consider these things. Buddha spoke about the kinds of happiness one can have on what he called the worldly level. One uh, teaching, he's speaking to his 
his uh, sort of foremost lay disciple. His name was Anattapindaka. He addressed him as householder, layman, not a renunciate. He said, Householder, there are these four kinds of happiness that may be achieved by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures, depending on time and occasion. Which four? The happiness of ownership or possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. And then he he went on in this teaching, he described these kinds of happiness in some detail. For example, he said, what householder is the happiness of ownership? Here one has acquired wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of one's arms, earned by the sweat of one's brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. When one thinks, I have acquired wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of my arms, earned by the sweat of my brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. One experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of ownership. And he went on to talk about the happiness of enjoyment in the same way. And it might not occur to us to reflect in this way. It seems kind of not Buddhist. And bring these things to mind, bring together our possessions, our material gains, the good things in our life. Reflect on the happiness that comes from these things. The hard work we might have done, the satisfaction, the pleasures that come, the enjoyment, that which we enjoy in life. Actually bring these to mind. But it's actually skillful to do. The Buddha recommended we do reflect on these things. Bring them to mind, the good things in our lives. And, and in a way, this is a, a, a kind of sense of counting our blessings, you could say. Turns the mind, the heart towards the quality of gratitude, a very wholesome, beautiful quality of mind, state of mind, mental energy. So there's, there's no problem with happiness on this, what we could call, what the Buddha called, worldly level. It's good. Good to enjoy that. But we have to bear in mind both the limitations of, of this kind of happiness, and there's an inherent fragility to it. I'm touching on some of the things that Carol uh, talked about last night here. Because no matter what, this uh, truth of change is going to rear its head at some point. Things don't last. Things fall apart different ways. So we have the perfect job, but something happens. We lose our job. Someone we love gets sick. We get sick. There's this, this uh, instability there. And even if things have this relative stability, maybe things kind of hold together, seem to have this, this somewhat reliable quality for periods of time. Eventually, no matter what, at some point, we're going to be faced with um, aging, sickness, and ultimately death. If we take birth, that's the trajectory of a life. There's no getting around that one. 
So what, what are we going to do then? This is a big problem. You know, how do we navigate this uncertainty, deal with the change, the truth of change, the unpredictability of, of these worldly conditions, this inherent unreliability of happiness that, that we might find on this kind of level? Because this path and this practice doesn't give us a way to escape from that, to escape from life. It's not about getting some kind of control so that we can get it to only be the way we want it to be and stay like that. Too bad. Bummer. Major bummer, that one. So if... If it's not about that, then, then what's the Buddha pointing to? What is the, what is the trajectory of, of our practice? What is it leading to? So it's about a different kind of happiness or freedom, what we could think of as a kind of independence. We often use the image, the Buddha used the image, and we find it in this tradition and other traditions that the spiritual life is, is kind of held, described, uh, sensed as a journey. We're on a journey where we use this path, we're walking this path, those kinds of images are on a voyage. And sometimes the spiritual life, the spiritual path is described as, as a journey home and the realization is, is likened to reaching our true home and for me, at least, when I think of, of what, what that might feel like, what it would be to reach one's true home, my true home, it has these, these connotations of a place where there's deep ease and the body, mind, the heart just can relax. Really relax there, this deep ease. And so we could say that we're on this journey to the deepest possible ease. Kind of freedom in that. And this, this can be kind of a useful image. It can almost have a feeling of um, this onward movement towards greater and greater ease. And it can be inspiring and it can be a good image as long as we, we don't hold it too literally. Because it's not that we're going somewhere other than where we are right now. And we're not getting something we don't already have. We end up where we started, but, but there is transformation. It's our understanding that changes. And beautifully expressed in, in these few lines from uh, T.S. Eliot from Little Gidding in the Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. arriving where we started, but we know it anew, we know it in a fresh way, in a different way. So nothing changes, yet there's this radical transformation, this transformation that comes about through the power of insight and wisdom and a deep, really deep seeing into the, you could say, the truth of the way things really are. So using this image of, of a path, one way we might think of that 
is in terms of, of the Buddhist teachings of the Noble Eightfold Path. He uses these words, a noble, noble path, walking this noble path. It's, it's a framework that allows us to understand the nature of suffering, the first noble truth. It goes right to the heart of the teachings here. It's a framework. We understand the nature of suffering. We understand its cause, the second noble truth. Carol's talk was so much uh, looking at this, the cause of suffering. A way to abandon that act, that cause, the cessation of suffering through that third noble truth, and through this to realize freedom. This is the freedom from suffering, the consummation of the four noble truths in this. We hear these things, you know, and these words and this eightfold path. And as soon as I use that word, there could be a lot of concern in your mind. I'm going to start listing these things out. You're going to probably be quizzed on it at some point. Especially, you're going to have to learn the Pali words. And uh, it's important that we keep in mind that it's not just some aspect of of Buddhist philosophy or a list that you're going to have to memorize if you're going to be a good Buddhist, especially if you sit a month-long retreat. You know, shorter retreats you can get away with with some of this stuff, but on long ones you you got to know these things. <laughs> Expected. But it's it's really this framework this for practice. It has practical application. It's something that applies in our practice, in our lives, in meditation, our lives outside meditation. And it, it sounds like, because it's an eightfold path, it sounds like when you start at one, whatever one is, and then you take eight steps, right? So it's, it's, not, that's, it's not really a linear progression in that way. And a more useful uh, way of, of thinking of this is the I think it, the, the eightfold noble weaving together of, of a strands that form a cable. So each one supports and informs the other and they, 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 you know, they wind together and it's not a progression in, in a step-by-step way. I'm going to talk a little bit about it tonight. So it's usually divided into three groups. Three parts to the Eightfold Path. And the first of these is usually called the wisdom group in the, in the way it's uh, conventionally uh, put out. And I think um, one of my colleagues spoke about this, and I'll go over it again. So the first, the wisdom group has these two factors, uh, samaditi, samasankapa. Repeat after me. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Unless you want to. Pali's kind of great. Samaditi. Samasankapa. Sankapa. Pali, it's just, it's great. Sankapa. Dukkha. Was that Venerable Nalayo, he had this great thing. What was his thing? He said, you weren't there. He said, oh, Asuba. Anyway, you had to be there. <laughs> There's something cool, you know. <laughs> Anyway, I should try to stay on track here. So, wise or right view, samaditi, right intention. Sometimes it's translated as right thought for samasankapa. 
And these factors, you could say, address the kind of the basic orientation of our mind. And they, they lead to a, a really radical shift in the way we look at things and our perception, our perspective. So the Buddha spoke about wise or right view, the first of these, in a lot of different ways. Understanding uh, karma, kamma, karma is, is an aspect of, of uh, right view and all, all kinds of ways that we could think of it. But I want to talk tonight about... Um, about it in terms of the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha that follows on. I'm going to be repeating and, and hopefully not just repeating things that Carol uh, said last night. So, so as Carol pointed out, the translation of the word dukkha as suffering is, is not, uh, it's too limited. It doesn't really capture the full meaning of this word. But an understanding of what this means is critical. So it, I think it's worth touching on again. And we can understand it, um, this on different levels, as Carol was saying, on the fundamental level of pain, painful sensations, painful feelings in the body of mind, um, different things that, that come through just having a body and a mind, different difficult mental, emotional states that come, come for all of us at times. And then there's this more subtle level, whereas it is this uh, essential uh, unreliable, uh, unreliability or insecurity that is um, an intrinsic part of all conditioned phenomena, you could say, because of their nature to change. So it's this reflection of the changing nature of things. And, and uh, pleasant things don't last, for example. Good times. So it's, this, it's a kind of inner anxiety produced by constant change, the unreliability of, of anything that is of the nature to arise, also then of the nature to pass away. So there's a kind of fragility that pervades our life because of this. It's, it's this constant flow of changing conditions, very much, not entirely, but largely outside of our direct control. And so there's this kind of vulnerability this inner anxiety that we feel because of this. You know, and, and we have this conditioning that we're supposed to get our lives to the point where it's only pleasant and happy, like, like a TV commercial. You know, the, the people, they're so happy and they're good looking. And, and we're supposed to somehow get, get that just happy all the time, and we should be good looking too. And, and so because we can't get that to happen, it, we, we take this truth of dukkha personally as though somehow it's our fault. That, it's, that our inability to get it to look like this, this you know, image of perfection that's there is somehow our fault an indication of some, some lack of, of something or something went wrong, you know, like it's a big mistake. But we're going to get the range of joys and sorrow and pleasure and pain and all the worldly conditions. That's just a reflection of reality. But it seems like such bad news, like someone made a real mistake with this. And we don't want to you know, we're holding out this hope. Enlightenment equals this steady state where it's only really pleasant. 
Well, we're not going to be able to get that to happen. The Buddha didn't get it to happen. He had a bad back. He had all kinds of problemos. People tried to give him, you know, give him a bad name. And I'm sure he had to hang out with people he would have preferred to have avoided <laughs> once in a while. I mean, some, some of these things he addresses, this stupid person. <laughs> it's in the, you know. Now, he didn't do that with, you know, anger in the heart. Maybe, I don't know, to get to be Buddhas and see. And it's not that we're helpless. It's not that we have no agency at all. We can add something into the mix and we do our best to live our lives with as much grace and integrity and, and you know, we, we do what we can to steer our lives in, in good ways. That's real and valid and valuable. But we have to open to the truth of this unreliability. I mean, this is the start of the path, understanding this. This is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. This is some words from Ajahn Chah. In Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. So this is really a radical shift of view. And it points to a really different strategy for finding happiness. The suggestion is rather than struggling with the truth of dukkha and fighting against this, the truth of change that gives rise to this this instability, this insecurity, by either trying to control it so it doesn't change, or falling into some kind of despair because the road is blocked, we open to the truth of this and we seek a possibility of another way through. We let go of fighting against things. We look for another way. So again, a few more words from Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Something so direct and profound in this. I mean, this is, this is the rolling on of samsara, isn't it? Like when the Buddha said that he, after his awakening, he, he surveyed the world and he saw beings trying desperately to be happy and doing the very thing that caused them to suffer. This is another expression of that. Until we open fully, really, in a real way, a practical way, a direct sensate way, you could say, to the truth of dukkha, we're always going to be looking for a way out of it. That's what Ajahn saw. We want to get around it some way, and we're going to be turning to that which in its nature is inherently unreliable and unable to provide us with any kind of lasting happiness. And, and it's just an endless, endless search. This is, just leads to more suffering. This is the suffering that leads to more suffering. But if we skillfully open to dukkha, really, really let this truth in, then we'll seek this reliable path, 
Ajahn Chah was, will seek a way, a way out. <laughs> out of the roadblock. One that might really, really lead to happiness, to freedom, to peace, to ease. This is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is opening to the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. So this shift of view, this transforms the truth of dukkha into a noble truth. It's noble because it can lead to the end of suffering. Highest happiness. So this is one way we could look at a key aspect of what we could call right view. So we bring the understanding that struggle, stress, suffering in relation to this unreliability that characterizes life on this plane is, is, relates to, is, is tied into how we're relating to this truth. That's where stress and struggle happen, is in the relationship there. So then our, our view and orientation in our life and meditation is, is totally and radically, trans, radically transformed in this. This brings the second of the wisdom factors, right intention into play. And we could see this as the factor which takes this understanding and links it with, um, takes it towards actions that we might take. So the intention there than to engage with the practice, to actually set out on the path, to do something, to start the practice, to set out on the journey. So we take these initial um, qualities, the wisdom of our view and the intention to then move forward. And we, uh, this leads us to uh, the second section of the Eightfold Path, which has to do with our conduct in the world, our behavior as we as we walk this path, and this is the second section, it's three parts. This is the teaching on, really on sila, on ethical conduct, as three, uh, right speech, sama vacha, right action, sama kamanta, and right livelihood, sama ajiva. And this, this uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, it's fundamentally, you could say, about creating harmony in our lives, in the world, by not intentionally adding to the suffering through our speech, our actions, and the way we make our living. Work we do. And so this commitment to really engaging here and looking and seeing, what am I doing? How am I speaking? What are the actions I'm taking? How am I earning a living? How am I, what is the work? Really paying attention. This is direct and real stuff. Then this leads us to the third section Sometimes called the concentration group or the bhavana. The word bhavana in Pali means uh, mental cultivation or mind development. I like the idea of cultivation. This idea of digging the earth and planting seeds and cultivating. There's this earthiness there. So there's three factors here. We have right effort, samavayama, Right mindfulness, samasati, and right concentration, samasamadhi. And there's a, a simile in one of the texts that I, I like to read. It's, it's a, kind of an image story that gives a, a kind of, I think, a useful um, illustration of, the, of a way that these factors intertwine and are interdependent. So in this, in this story, there are three children who go to a park to play 
And while they're walking along, they see a tree that in flower and they want to gather flowers, but, but the flowers are, are too high. Even the, the tallest of the children can't reach them. So one, one of them bends down and offers um, their back to stand on and the tall child climbs up, but, but is, is afraid to reach for the flowers because they feel unstable. So the third child comes and offers their shoulder and, and the child uh, who's standing on the other one's back can stay, steady themselves, stabilize themselves and is able to pick the flowers. And, and it's uh, in this illustration, it's said that the tall child who's able to pick the flowers represents concentration, which has this function of unifying the mind, gathering, but it needs two kinds of support or support in two ways you could say. So there's the energy by, of, provided by right effort. It's like the child that offers the, the platform of their back to stand on. And then the stabilizing awareness of mindfulness, um, like the child who offers their, their shoulder. So you have these, these three working together And when they come together, there's a certain degree of stability of the mind. You could say a kind of non-distractedness. We've been talking about this in different ways. And you could say the function of that is that it allows the awareness to, um, to, in a way, kind of rest more uh, firmly or with more stability on whatever object is arising in our experience so that we actually connect with our life in a way that, that lets us be there long enough, you could say, for understanding, for insight to actually arise. And it lets us drop below the, the surface appearances of things. And we get to the, in my earlier uh, last talk, I, I had this uh, image from uh, Henry David Thoreau of, of fronting the essential facts of existence. <laughs> Let's us uh, get to um, the essence of things. You could say that's what we're interested in here. And so we start to see one way that this, uh, this process unfolds, that we see our inner world and how this functions and how habits of mind uh, show up and how they run our world. And, and just through seeing this, um, connecting with it, not through trying to fix it, but there's this process of settling, letting go that happens because we start to see how suffering arises and it deconditions a grasping, clinging in the mind. We feel the suffering of that. It's like a fist that we've been making and we see, oh, do this, make a fist here. Squeeze that baby, get those knuckles nice and white. A little harder. Squeeze it and then let it go. Just stop. There's, there's release there. You see how we do that, all the ways that we do that. We just stop doing it. And through this process, we start to touch the possibility that that this path and practice has the potential to lead to the deepest kind of peace, to complete freedom from suffering, 
the peace and freedom of Nibbana, what we could call the, the fruit of the Buddha's awakening, this possibility that he pointed to and said, this is, a poss- this is possible, this is real. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this. I wouldn't ask you to do it. And there's a simple definition in one place in one of the texts, extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This I call Nibbana. So in other words, if these energies, mental energies, no longer um, hold sway over the mind, are no longer in charge, maybe not right now, in a moment, then one experiences peace. And when they're not present, when they are not arising, they never have this sway over the mind. And this is one way we can think of this, the piece of Nibbana, of the Buddha's realization. And what if they just never arose in the mind stream? Carol and I used to visit this uh, old monk in the Sagaing Hills near a place where we spent quite a bit of time. Um, we, our friends nicknamed this monk the Happy Sayadaw. And he died a couple of years ago at the age of 99, having spent 87 years in robes. And um, he was a real yogi. And he had been a a well-known teacher. He he had been a teacher to a lot of very famous teachers. And when we met him, he was living a very simple life. And uh, he's pretty much the happiest being I have ever encountered know how you feel about him. It was worth going to Burma to hang out with the happy Sayada for a while. Miyatong Sayada. That's another one with Deva, Deva pictures, Deva, round Deva things. Yeah, pictures of him. with around him. Yeah. Carol was talking about someone got a picture of him and was it your, one of her talks talking about these pictures of balls of light that someone said, oh, those are Devas. Happened around him. One of the last times I saw him, he'd been invited out to, uh, he was probably 97, and he'd been invited out to, for a meal and to give a Dharma talk. <laughs> and he was coming back, and he was, were you there? He was coming back, and he, um, he was pretty old at 97, and um, he, was, he was tiny, and he was like a skeleton covered with skin, kind of. I mean, he really, not much left of him. <laughs> and he was... So these, these younger monks were, and it is everything in this, the hills where he lived, it's all up and down stairs and, and things. So he was coming back and, and they had made kind of a, a they had linked their hands and made kind of a seat for him to sit on. And, and two were, he was sitting and two of them were carrying him. And a third was behind kind of gently pushing and supporting him so he didn't fall back. And, and he was, it was like he was flying up the stairs and his legs were kind of going like this, but they weren't touching the ground. <laughs> and he was, he was just, through his, his arms were up and he just was laughing and laughing. And, um, you know, we were coming down the stairs as he was coming up and then we turned around and went up with him. And, you know, it doesn't sound very dignified, but he was so dignified that he was so light and so there and such deep, deep presence and deep dignity. It was, it was just lovely to see him flying up the stairs. 
I have a point in talking about him. Um, so one of my friends once, uh, one of our colleagues and friends said, once asked him why he's so happy. And he said, oh, I have no ill will towards you or you or you or anybody anywhere. <laughs> Just wasn't arising. Or what if they came, what if they came, these energies, but they'd had no power in the mind and heart of, at all. This is uh, some words from a book uh, about a Thai, a Thai a nun, Mei Kao, who, she died in the 80s. And she was regarded by, um, she was a, a student of Ajahn Man, very famous, and Ajahn Mahabua. And um, Ajahn Mahabua said she was fully enlightened. She was regarded as fully enlightened. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. Oh, they don't arise, they arise and they are powerless. Different ways maybe of looking at the same thing, but this possibility. This word Nibbana that I've been using, that we've been using now and then, it, it has a couple of meanings. One of them is something like to cease blowing or to go out. And sometimes it's likened to a fire that goes out when uh, when the fuel is no longer there. And when, a, when a fire exhausts its fuel, it, it just goes out. And it's a good image, I think. If, we, if there's no longer fuel for the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, they just go out. There's nothing feeding them, they just fall away. The word Nibbana also apparently, colloquial term means to, to cool down, you know, to let let the rice nibbana after cooking it. So nibbana is really getting really chilled out. You could say, really cooled out. We, we use this word kilesa, it gets translated as defilement and it's a catch-all term for these energies of greed, of, of hatred, aversion, of delusion, and all the different ways that shows up, the hindrances, for example. And I think we have to be careful when using this translation defilement. It's like, you know, we just, we're just all walking buckets of defilements. You know, it's just, it just doesn't sound so good. And I think there's, there's a danger in, whole, in using this word because it, it's, a defilement is, doesn't, it's not a good thing. Generally, that term. Does anyone hold that word as in real positive connotation? <laughs> if you do ever heard it before, it might not be an English word that you know. 
But it's important to remember that these are not evil or bad or wrong. They're just a reflection of the untrained mind's attempts to deal with the truths of change, unpredictability, uncontrollability. They're they're an attempt to deal with anicca, dukkha, and anatta. That's what those things, they're trying to help, friends. They're just misguided. When they show up, you can say, hello, little defilement. Hello, little greed. Thank you. But let's try something else. It's not working. But you can come. Have them, invite them along. But put them in the child seat with a cookie. Because <laughs> if they're driving, it's going to go all over the place. If greed is driving, it's going over there. And if aversion is driving, it's going over there. And if confusion is driving, it's going all over the place. So you say, you use the image of driving the bus. You don't want them driving the bus. But to condemn them, it's they're trying to help us out. So these, um, these energies, they show up on, on three, kind of three ways that they show up. And I, these are kind of interesting words. So the first way is in terms of our behavior. You could say our outward behavior in the world. This is called a level of transgression, where we're acting them out. It's when they have the upper hand, when they are driving the bus, and they lead to actions. Then there's a level, sometimes it's called the obsessive level, and that's when they, they're arising in the mind, they're coming up, but there's enough presence of mind that we're not acting them out. They're not giving rise to action. We can see them, feel them. And then there's a third uh, level that's very uh, more subtle, you could say, that's called the latent tendencies, where they're not showing up, they're not currently manifesting, they're in a kind of a dormant state, but the potential for them is there and given the right conditions, they'll show up. And there's an image for this um, mud at the bottom of a pond that has settled out. But if the conditions are, are right, they'll get stirred up and it'll show up again. So they're not, they're not eradicated, they're just calmed down. They're in this dormant, inactive state. I was uh, spending, during the time that I was living in monk's robes in Burma and I I was on a, a long, a very long extended period of um, meditation, uh, really on a retreat time. And um, I had my own little hut. And, uh, and there had been some robberies in the monastery and they'd asked us to turn on our porch lights and leave them on at night so that we would try to keep people from breaking in um, to any of them. And so... Uh, so we did this, but at that time, especially, the power was very uncertain and unreliable. And so it would go out very regularly. It was probably out more than it was on. And uh, so this one night, I, I turned on my, dutifully turned on my porch light and, um, you know, left it on. And then I took some rest. And, and um, there's a lot of uh, nighttime wildlife in, in Burma in the form of insects, all kinds, and these little uh, geckos, uh, kind of lizards that, uh, well, gravity doesn't seem to apply to them. And they, <laughs> they run up walls and also upside down on ceilings. And they, they're very happy when there are uh, lights and, and insects. Uh, 
And so the geckos were having a feast, but they're, they're kind of um, messy and they drop legs and wings and, and different body parts down below. So they were going wild and covering my porch with nice tasty insect body parts, which, um, which drew ants. And meanwhile, the lights have gone out. So I'm sitting, I've up before very early and I'm sitting for a few hours. Shanti, Shanti. Oh, so chilled out. No, no defilements anywhere in sight. Like, just not there. And I get up, it's time to get up and go for my early morning duties and uh, put on my robes and step out. And there's a particular kind of ant that, um, that takes live prey. And um, those little ones, and they, they will, I've seen them strip a, a lizard to bones in, in a minute or two. And, and I was, they'd been feeding on these bugs parts all night and then this huge bug, me, comes out, it's like, ah. And so I'm, I'm ah, shanti, oh, peaceful, stepping out. And immediately I'm attacked and, and they're preparing to eat me. And um, their bites are very unpleasant. And um, there were some latent tendencies that showed up. <laughs> In terms of some aversion, did, did come. Um, and then, you know, I had to try to get them off without harming them, which is very difficult. <laughs> anyway, my illustration of latent tendencies there. So... Um, let's see, any chance I'll get through this. So, um, the, these Eightfold Path factors address the, the energies of the kilesas on these, um, on these levels of the transgressive, the obsessive, the latent tendencies. And, and they arrange themselves in a different order, which is, um, in, in some traditions, it's called the three trainings in sila, samadhi, panya, in, um, ethical conduct, uh, meditation, concentration, and wisdom. So it's the same factors, but it starts with sila, then to uh, concentration, bhavana, mind development, meditation, and then to wisdom. And so the transgressive uh, level of, of the kilesas where we're acting them out is countered by the sila group. So the, our ethical conduct, our engagement with the precepts, and in terms of the path, right speech, right action, right livelihood, this commitment to non-harming um, that our, our practice rests on, the foundation that it rests on, um, addresses these. And so this allows us to move to more subtle levels because if we're acting these energies out, we can't uh, address the mental energies and mind states that give rise to them. We're, we're past that, we're already past that. So this gives us the chance to address them on the second level where they're arising in the mind but um, we're meeting them there without having to act them out. And this is mostly what we're doing in meditation as we go through the days, is we're meeting everything, including these energies in the mind and heart, in their arising. And our tools of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, the meditation tools, let us do that. And so we're able to sit with anger and frustration and boredom and desire, confusion, and restlessness and, and just 
feel them, connect with them, open to them directly, get to know them without having to turn away from them or without trying having to manipulate things so we don't feel them and without acting them out. And we start to see that through the process of sitting with these things, that their hold and grip on the mind and heart starts to loosen by itself. They start to unbind and relax. And they arise and pass away. We see that having arisen, they will pass. Sooner or later, that's what they do. As anything else that is of the nature to arise. And so these uh, factors of, uh, the meditative factors of effort, mindfulness, concentration, um, they, they collect and stabilize the mind and, and they can bring a certain pure purity of mind. And when it reaches a certain level of strength, there, there, um, there's such continuity of the mindfulness as that, that the, there's no space, no gaps for the, the kalesas to get in. <laughs> so they can be held at bay temporarily for periods of time. It be short periods, but they can be held at bay. And there can be a very peaceful, restful experience there. Sometimes it's called the bliss of seclusion, where the mind and heart are secluded for periods of time, temporarily secluded from these energies. They're just not arising. But when conditions change, like me and my aunts, they'll, they can come up again because they're not eradicated. They're, they're in a latent or dormant state. And so the third level of the latent tendencies are addressed by the wisdom group, the panya, which has the possibility and potential to actually uh, uproot them or render them powerless, depending on how you look at it. And this is, this is insight on kind of the deepest level, you could say the insight of insight meditation. It results from, it's a direct intuitive understanding it's not born of figuring out or analysis or intellect so much. And here this Panya wisdom addresses a kind of fundamental um, confusion or delusion that, that is underneath even the misguided energies of these kilesas. It's kind of a deep clouding of the mind and heart, you could say. And it shows up in three ways. We're going to talk, we've talked about this, we'll talk about it over and over. It shows up in taking that which is impermanent to be permanent, that which is incapable of providing a source of lasting happiness to be capable of doing that, and it takes that which is not a self to be a self. And so... In meditation, when the mind is somewhat stable and collected, we start to see the truth of change in a more, um, a more profound way, you could say, a way that is transformative, transformational. And at points we start to see that things are changing so rapidly that there's, there's nothing we could possibly hold on to there's no experience that could ever serve as a source of lasting happiness, as a reliable source of happiness. It's just, it's all falling away so quickly. So we see 
um, we see the truth of change. We see the unreliability. We see dukkha on that level. Nothing lasts long enough to be dependable. And we start to see into what is maybe the most fundamental uh, level of this delusion, and that is um, this taking of, of what is not a self to be a self. And this is really the most radical and, and I think really the most, potentially at least, the most liberating of the, the Buddha's understandings. And it's really just the process of seeing that our experience, that the flow of our life is this flow of natural processes, that it's cause and effect, that it's conditions unfolding over and over, arising, passing. Right now, in this moment, these conditions have come for this moment, never been here before, never will be here again, passing away, coming together, passing away. We just see it's, it's just nature. It's natural law unfolding. It's a process that's happening by itself. There's no one in charge of it, and ultimately there's no one to whom it's happening. That it's, it's clinging to identification with some aspect of that process that gives rise to the feeling, I am, this is mine, this is happening to me. That it's not that there's not a self, it's just not what we think it is. It's a feeling that arises in relationship to some aspect of experience. It arises of, out of how we're relating to it. And seeing this, seeing the conditioned nature of things in this deep way, uh, inclines the mind and heart to release. And as, our, as we see this over and over, our tendency to latch onto and identify with experience, lay claim to it as somehow referring back to something that has ongoing existence, it just falls away because it just doesn't make sense. We just see there isn't anything there. And it's a huge relief. Then we just let things arise and cease, which they're gonna do anyway. That's the nature. So we, we just give it back to nature. We made a mistake in appropriating it, so we give it back. And there's this deep letting go, this um, laying down of, of a burden we didn't know we were carrying, you could say. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop now, but I wanna leave, uh, leave you with some, some more words from uh, Mei Chi Kao, the enlightened uh, nun from Thailand. These beautiful words. In a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily and fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, 
while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is by its very nature absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. Let's just sit quietly in that stillness for a moment. You don't have to change your posture. Thank you for listening this evening and thank you for your practice today. Um, It's another beautiful starry night for some walking meditation. If you want to go outside, walking meditation inside, also good. And uh, we are doing the metta sutta chanting in Pali and English. Um, And we sounded pretty good last night. So um, please come and join for that if you'd like to. The rule is you can leave right after the chanting if you're ready for bed. And um, yeah, please be welcome.